Welcome to The Hale Report at EconView's podcast studio in Chicago. Today is Friday, March 13th, 2020, and we will be having a conversation with two renowned experts in their fields. Ezra Vogel is Professor Emeritus at Harvard University, a scholar of both Japan and East Asia, and Noriyuki Shikata is a career diplomat who has served as minister at the Japanese embassy in Beijing. He's conducting research at Harvard this year, so both of our guests are joining us from Cambridge. Mr. Shikata has also studied under Professor Vogel, so they've known each other for quite some time. We will be posting their bios on our website, econview.com, as well as links to Professor Vogel's latest book about the history of the relationship between China and Japan, Facing History. Very relevant right now. Both Professor Vogel and Minister Shikata had been scheduled to be in Chicago with us tonight to address the 90th anniversary gala of the Japan-America Society of Chicago. Circumstances that are well known to all of us intervened. Although the gala will be rescheduled for later in the year, we thought that this would be a good time to go virtual and discuss the importance of the friendship between our two countries, the United States and Japan. Gentlemen, how are things in Cambridge today? Well, they're fine except for the flu. Okay. <laughs> exactly. I think spring is coming to Cambridge. It is. Well, we have we have some of it in Chicago, but we're keeping calm and going on, I think, carrying on. So I'd like to ask my guests, um, uh, especially um, my very eminent guests, how they got involved in their field. We have a lot of listeners who are both students um, and uh, who are just beginning their careers. And um, so, Professor Vogel, I'll start with you. How did you first become interested in Japan? I was a late bloomer. I was getting my PhD at Harvard in 1957, and I was working on the families of emotionally disturbed children. One of my professors said to me, you are so provincial. You <laughs> grew up in a small town in Ohio. Mm -hmm. You've never been out of the United States. If you want to teach about American society, you ought to go to a very different culture and see that different culture and I think a good place to go would be Japan, because they have modern technology. They have a culture very different from Europe. And uh, Japan would be very interesting. I never had thought of it, except that there were two professors at Harvard. Both of them had a Chicago connection. Hmm. <clears throat> One was Bill Caudill, who got his degree in anthropology at Chicago toward the end of World War II and was one of my faculty members, and he said, yes, Japan is the place to go. The other was John Pelzell, who had gotten his PhD at the University of Chicago in the 30s. Hmm. And so both of them were very instrumental in getting me trained and getting me ready. And in 1958, I got a two-year scholarship, uh, fellowship for work in Japan. One year uh, was in language training, and uh, one year was to do fieldwork. And my wife, uh, unfortunately, I got divorced later, but my wife at the time, Suzanne Hall, uh, <clears throat> had spent a year in social work school at the University of Chicago. And uh, the second year, uh, she had come to Simmons where, to be with me, and she was ready to go. So off we were to Japan in the summer of 1958, and we've well, never regretted. What a life-changing suggestion that was. That, that's just amazing. Absolutely. And I think she it is true. Right. She was right. Yeah. I think to know another culture, your own culture, you definitely have to study another one. 
in order to triangulate. That was she had a special idea about mm-hmm. how to learn uh, in an anthropological way, and that is, you can't be uh, aloof and objective. You have to make friends, and then you have to understand the friendship and your role, and you have to sort of detach that. But the first thing you need to do is develop a deep enough relationship so that you really get under the skin and really think and understand. And that was also wonderful advice. Well, I think there's no doubt. I think uh, Shikata-san will agree with me that you have many, many friends in Japan. So I think you were successful in that goal. I did. I was very lucky. I met a lot of nice people and uh, we became friends. Yes. That's wonderful. And um, Mr. Shikata, can you tell us, now you're, research, you're back in school at Harvard doing research. Um, are you working with Professor Vogel? What kind of research are you doing now? Well, I, I uh, moved from uh, Beijing to Boston uh, last summer, and uh, I actually graduated from uh, Harvard Kennedy School uh, 30 years ago. So after working as diplomat for 30 years, I'm kind of back uh, to school. And, and now, based on my experiences in, in China, as well as uh, my former uh, experiences as a trade negotiators with the United States government or managing uh, U.S.-Japan uh, relations, I'm now focusing on uh, the issues of uh, emerging U.S. trade policy uh, toward China and its uh, implications for international trading system, which is obviously a very important subject matter uh, for Japan. Critical. And trade issues have really, um, I think, uh, faded somewhat in light of the coronavirus right now. But I'm sure they'll come back, they'll come roaring back again as this, you know, as the crisis diminishes, too. Well, one thing that um, I've been asked to ask you both about um, and something I think thinking, people are looking at as a beacon of hope for the end of this crisis um, are the upcoming Tokyo Olympics. And I know that you know, the 1964 Olympics were very important uh, in Japan's development and relationship with the United States. Professor Vogel, can you tell us a little bit about the 1964 Olympics and what they represented in terms of a turning point in Japan's post-war revival in relationship with the U.S.? I had the good luck of being in Japan at least once a year since 1958. And I was there in 63 and 64. And I can remember one time during that time walking the streets around midnight and all the construction was going loudly and booming as if it were in the middle of the day and people were getting rid of, of the Olympics. As you know, the Shinkansen the bullet train. was ready for the Olympics. It came on rail in 1954. And for Japan, of course, it was a coming out party. Later, when Korea did the, South Korea did the Olympics, it was a coming out party. When Beijing did the Olympics in 1988, it was a coming out party. It was a recognition that Japan had arrived to a modern country, and Japan wanted to show the rest of the world. What surprised me was that all that construction and all that effort to uh, get industry going didn't die down. I thought at the time, maybe this is a special push for the Olympics, but Japan just kept working away 
and industry didn't stop at it. Some of the construction slowed down a little, but it just kept zooming ahead. But that was a very important turning point in presenting Japan to the world as a modern country. I remember Ed Reischauer saying at the time, unfortunately, we're in a backward country. We don't have a modern rail system like Japan. And everybody laughed at the time. I'm probably dating myself, but I was an exchange student in Japan in 1970 when the Bampaku um, was uh, the, the World uh, Expo. You're a late developer. You're a late developer. Yeah. You're young. <laughs> but that was amazing, the effect that that had, that expo had on Japan and Japan's place in the world, you know, vi- having visited it then too. Well, that was a time when Osaka and Kansai were catching up. Uh, everybody thought that Tokyo Olympics helped Tokyo more than a lot of other places, and the Kansai wanted their turn. Right. So the 1970 Expo in Osaka was a way for the Kansai to get up, and then Tanaka Kakoe felt the rest of the country had to catch up too. So uh, it was a stage development. Well, you know, it was such a it was such a turning point, and now we're faced with another turning point. So, Shikata-san, I'd like to ask you that you know the governor of Tokyo has said that it's unthinkable that the forthcoming Olympics will be postponed, and the Olympic torch actually began its journey around the world this week. What are your feelings based on the current spread of the coronavirus, and could we see a new kind of Olympics, maybe a competition without fans? As, as you may know, Premier Abe and President Trump uh, talked over phone last night, uh, including the issues of uh, Tokyo Olympics and uh, Paralympics. In the context of uh, discussing our joint efforts to tackle uh, coronavirus, uh, Premier Sabe explained his efforts to uh, host Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics, in his uh, determination. And the President Trump said he appreciates uh, uh, Japanese. Uh, uh, transparent efforts, and, and the two leaders concurred uh, that Japan and the United States will further strengthen our cooperation in this field. So uh, we are not planning to host a competition without uh, fans, and uh, of course, you know, the, this is a very challenging uh, period of time, but uh, we think that we still have time uh, to prepare uh, for, the, uh, for the Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics. Well, I think there are about 11,000 uh, participants, um, athletes, and also it's the Special Olympics is part of that as well, and there are 4,500 Special Olympic participants. So I'm, I think the whole world is hoping the show will go on and that we'll be able to do that at that time. And so many Japanese, so many Japanese hotels and bus companies and train companies have been undertaking uh, terrific construction to get ready for this. So it's not just a sports contest. It's a whole country that's invested a tremendous amount. Uh, I think uh, we would be lucky to have the Olympics, but I think we're going to have to be prepared for the possibility that it might have to be postponed. And I think an awful lot of people are going to have to work very hard uh, to see whether it's possible. And if it's not possible, then what's the fallback for the rest of the world? Right. Well, it's, I think the investment is something like $12 billion is, is what I heard. And also 80,000 volunteers from around the world for whom this is a once-in-a-lifetime you know, experience. So, yeah. So we hope it goes on, too. 
So I'm going to ask now, switch to a macro question about the U.S., Japan, and China, and then ask a micro question to follow up. So my macro question to Professor Vogel is, as a result of what's going on today, do you foresee any changes in the long-term relationship between the U.S. and Japan and China? What, what does history teach us about how things might be changing? Well, uh, in 1895, for the first time in history, Japan was on top in the relationship. As a result of the Sino-Japanese War, the Japanese won. And from then until about 2010, in the relationship between China and Japan, Japan was on top. In 2008, the financial crisis, and with the Beijing's very successful Olympics, uh, China felt that finally that had been reversed. And in 2010, according to the World Bank, uh, the Chinese economy was larger than Japan's. So in this period from about 2008 to 2010 and 12, China surpassed Japan. And you can imagine how proud some Chinese were and how much some people say now it's our turn to be the tough and be the one on top. But by 2014, they realized that they had to stabilize things and they began to work to try to quiet things down and I think they've been doing that ever since. We can't expect that suddenly the relationships as a result of World War II and all the problems that have developed are suddenly going to go away. But as you know, Xi Jinping was hoping to go to Japan this April. Right. That visit has had to be postponed. But we can still expect that visit. Mm -hmm. And that is going to be, I think, a step forward. And another step forward is that Japan responded to the uh, coronavirus thing much better than the United States. The United, a lot of Americans said, oh, China didn't do it right, and that because they have an authoritarian government, they didn't have enough people responding. The Japanese instinctive response is, they've gone through a crisis, we got to help them. Mm. And a number of Japanese were caught having conversations that were recorded and went online in China saying, we got to help them. Ito Chu was smart enough. They sent one million masks to China right away. And a lot of local Japanese uh, were began to send drugs and to see what they could do to help. And people were cheering for Wuhan. Uh, and so I think that had a terrific impact in China. And the Chinese, I think, as a result of this new uh, Japanese response have gone a step further, further in feeling friendly toward China. They're not going to forget about World War II, but they've gone a long way. The Japanese, on the other hand, are still leery about what China has been doing in the South China Sea. Right. They're leery about all the military expenses, all the, the things that uh, China is doing around the world, uh, the tough confidence do you see on the faces of a lot of Chinese leaders? So I think Japan is not that enthusiastic. But the mood in China, I think, is a result of the Xi Jinping visit, which is planned this year, and of the re Japanese response uh, to the coronavirus, is put the relationship on a good step forward from the Chinese point of view. So a silver lining, an unintended, beneficial, good consequence. 
And um, Mr. Shikata, I understand that Japan and China co-founded a hospital uh, for infectious diseases way back in the 1980s. Can you tell us more about this? So this isn't just recent. This is this mutual fight has uh, longer roots. Well, uh, it is uh, uh, called uh, China-Japan Friendship Hospital, uh, which is located in Beijing. And uh, this was established you know, through the assistance from the Japanese government in, the, in terms of uh, foreign aid for, uh, grants, uh, aid program uh, in the early 1980s. And of course, uh, this uh, was made possible in the context of uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping's uh, reform and opening up and the normalization of uh, ties uh, between Japan and China. And uh, uh, later, uh, this uh, hospital has become one of the best uh, uh, regarded hospitals uh, across China with very strong uh, expertise uh, on in infectious uh, diseases. So uh, uh, actually Japan and China has hosted uh, inviting, uh, for example, Southeast uh, Asian uh, medical professionals uh, for, the for their training uh, at that hospital. So of course, you know, global uh, issues uh, such as uh, infectious diseases, as we see today, uh, we need international cooperation and sharing uh, information and good practices. And uh, without you know, such international cooperation, we cannot address uh, the uh, preventing pandemics or, or addressing uh, the, the, rea the real issues. So I think that, that you know, the current uh, uh, crisis, in a sense, uh, demonstrates the need for us uh, to cooperate. And, and uh, as I mentioned, between the United States and Japan, uh, we, we are stepping up, up our efforts for cooperation. And you know, in order to address uh, this issue, uh, it goes without saying that we need to engage uh, uh, China as well. I think uh, even though the China and Japan have had a lot of problems, when they have emergency in one country, in the last couple of decades, things have gone pretty well. When the Sichuan earthquake occurred, Japan sent in a lot of aid. And when the Tohoku problem came and the tsunami and the, and the Fukushima nuclear problem, China responded in quite a positive way. And I think the medical area is one of the areas where two countries that are tense about military and other political issues can really have positive cooperation. And Japan has taken quite a positive role. I'm particularly appreciative of the role that one of the Diet members, Takemi, has played. Because Takemi's father was for 25 years head of the Medical Association in Japan and did a lot. Uh, he was one year president of the International Medical Association to promote Japan as an international uh, uh, participant in medical issues. And it happens that the son, uh, Takemi Keizo, is in the diet now and has been playing a very positive role in the diplomacy of working with the Japanese prime ministers in making uh, good positive contacts uh, with Japan around the world. So I think that even before this current crisis, there were things that were happening in Japan in the medical field that put uh, Japan on, the, on a positive footing to make this one of the areas where they can step ahead in getting cooperation with the rest of the world. 
Well, I hope it's a model that the U.S. could follow for its relationship with China as well, to find these areas of common ground, because um, that relationship, as we all know, has, has deteriorated. You know, here in the, bringing this back to the Middle West, we have a huge number of Japanese companies who've invested here and who employ hundreds of thousands of people. So Japan, after the trade tensions um, of the 80s, um, switched and actually started investing in greenfield projects in the U.S. But China doesn't seem to have followed that model. Um, is that something Japan should be, should be doing, or China should be doing? I think Japan was in a better position to do that because they already had a lot of high technology in all kinds of areas by the time the trade dispute developed. And the Japanese began meeting right. together and working with American states and trying to get Japanese plants located in every state. So if you go to Georgia, they got YKK, and if they go to uh, Nebraska, they got Kawasaki, uh, and uh, right. so on. And uh, you have uh, plant plants in every state. And then they made contacts with the local Congress people. The, the Chinese are beginning to have some factories in the United States but they don't have that much uh, advanced industrial technology uh, compared to the United States the way that Japan did at the time when Japan was coming. So Japan had a, uh, they were behind uh, in politically, but they were ahead industrially. And technically, they mm -hmm. made very good use of it. And that's a long rounded way of saying, I think your question is absolutely right. That's something that China should now be trying to do more. In some cases, that might mean putting money into American firms. But in some cases, where China is now beginning to get ahead, uh, they might uh, begin to develop plants in the United States. As you know, the, the issue of the 5G, the Huawei issue, is a very big issue. Right. And if uh, China should take some steps, and if it could be worked out between the two countries, that some of those factories could come to the United States, I think it could do a lot to tone down the hostilities between the United States and China. I agree with Japan as the model for that. From my viewpoint, uh, of course, uh, uh, because of uh, U.S.-Japan trade frictions in the 70s and 80s, many Japanese uh, companies, uh, especially auto and auto parts companies, decided to relocate to the United States. And, uh, and by now, as you know, in many of the Midwestern states, uh, uh, Japanese companies are creating largest number of jobs uh, in many of the states, including uh, Indiana, Kentucky, Tennessee, Ohio, Illinois, among others. So, uh, but initially when Japanese companies arrived uh, in the United States, I, I think, you know, they have faced, you know, some of the uh, the, the challenges uh, in uh, kind of working with American workers and so forth. I guess I, I remember a movie in, entitled Gangho uh, in, in the early 80s. And now I guess there is an American factory, uh, uh, I guess uh, produced by President uh, Obama. Um, so it took uh, many years uh, for Japanese companies to 
to work uh, and and operate in the in the United States as a good corporate citizenship citizen. And, and by now, I think uh, there is a a good support am, among American uh, municipalities and communities uh, welcoming Japanese investment. And so. Uh, I, I guess challenge uh, for Chinese companies is uh, given the growing perception in the United States about anxieties, uh, especially in the areas of uh, high technology, uh, how Chinese investments in greenfield uh, areas will be accepted or not. Uh, I think that's a difficult uh, question to answer. The Japanese have really worked very hard. Uh, it happens that the Honda plant is located a few miles from my hometown, and the person who was the go-between in between the governor of Ohio and Japan was one of my students. So I know that story very well. And Honda, before they set up the plant, they found in their company some Christians, and they sent them to Marysville, Ohio, to join the Christian church so wow. they could begin to form local relations with the people. And when the Honda plant got started, the hospital board in Columbus said maybe they ought to learn how to be more efficient. And they put somebody from the Honda plant on the hospital board who immediately began to work to try to increase efficiency in the hospital. So uh, I think that's just in the neighborhoods. Uh, they, they didn't want the Japanese executives to live all in one neighborhood. They want them spread out in different parts of Marysville. So they really, really worked out very hard. And I think the, that's a great message to give to the Chinese is how hard the Japanese worked, worked right. in that time period to make the breakthroughs. Yeah. During that period, my clients were the Japanese auto companies and auto parts companies. So, you know, I got to witness, I was privileged really to witness that firsthand. You know, if, and if you don't mind, I'd love to put in a plug here for Japan America Society because that's where many business people from all over the Chicago area, at least, and there are other societies throughout the Midwest and throughout the country. And this is a place where people get to meet and talk and learn about each other. So I think that effort, I don't think there's anything similar to that for China that exists today. So that's I, another maybe. I want, I want to put in the, I want to support, I want to support your plug because there are now 38 <laughs> Japan Americans is in the United States, and one of my former students happens to be the president of the Japan American Association, and he works very hard. And the Japanese have really worked very hard to develop those community relationships in various cities throughout the country. And uh, I think that would be a wonderful model for the Chinese to try to uh, follow. Uh, the Japanese have really done a marvelous job. And our cities in the United States are really very grateful, I think, for the, for the depth. Uh, they also invested in local universities, local research centers, uh, local projects uh, outside of their industrial area. And I think that's been, it's been wonderful for Japan, wonderful for the United States. And it could be wonderful for China and the United States if we can both do more to make that possible. I think so. And if you'd like to hear more, um, about um, the things that we're doing at Japan America Society. The website there is uh, jaschicago.org. And uh, if you're listening in, in Chicago, uh, we hope that you'll join us. And 
that you'll come and celebrate our slightly postponed uh, 90th, uh, 90, 90th anniversary. Um, Professor Vogel and uh, Mr. Shikata, thank you so much for sharing your insights today. I hope this gives everyone um, a little bit of a flavor of the program that we will we'll be having uh, in Chicago. And thank you so much. Everyone stay safe. Thank you. Thank you very much. We believe in your program and the importance. Your program is 90 years old today. I am 90 years old today, and I join in celebrating our joint joint birthdays. I I think it's a wonderful coincidence (laughs) that we're celebrating these birthdays together. (laughs) What could be better? What could be better? And hopefully... All of us around the world will have a lot to celebrate by the time of our gala. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.